Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher as well. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. All right, so we have reached the go-home episode of Monday Night Raw before fully loaded 1999, a pay-per-view which is being hyped as the end of an era due to the stipulations of the main event. And according to the current storylines which have been put in play, this could very well be the final time that Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon appear on the same episode of Raw, so with the stakes being that high, I think we should just jump right into the show. It is Monday, July 19th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky. For those of you who are not familiar with this venue, this is the arena where the University of Kentucky's men's basketball team plays its home games, and they've been very successful over the years. In fact, they actually won the College Basketball National Championship in March of 1998, just a year and a half prior to this episode of Raw. And some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include six episodes of Raw, with the most recent one being in January of 2020, three episodes of SmackDown, four episodes of Thunder, and just one pay-per-view, Backlash 2006, which is best remembered as the show where Vince McMahon teamed up with his son Shane to face Shawn Michaels and his tag team partner, God. And I have to say, booking God to lose in Kentucky of all places, well, let no one say that Vince doesn't have grapefruits, that's for sure. But before the televised show began tonight, I should point out that we actually had a whopping five dark matches prior to the start of Raw, with some interesting results. Gangrel defeated D'Lo Brown. The Colorado Kid defeated Tracy Smothers. Meat defeated the Blue Meanie. Glenn Ruth defeated Rob Conway. And in case you weren't aware, Conway was actually wrestling in the WWF's developmental territory, Ohio Valley Wrestling, around this time, which is located only about 90 minutes away in nearby Louisville, Kentucky. But despite this little tryout, Conway won't actually end up being a full-time performer in the company for another four years. And in your final dark match, Chaz defeated Kurt Angle. Yes, you heard that correctly. The former Beaver Cleavage picked up a victory over the Olympic gold medalist and future WWE Hall of Famer, and I really hope they have that footage in the archives somewhere. So yes, those were all the matches that didn't air on television, but now, let's get into the show itself. We begin this week's episode of Monday Night Raw with a montage of the Austin-McMahon feud, including the Zamboni incident, the Corvette being filled with cement, Stone Cold putting the fake gun to Vince's head, the beer bath, the bedpan to the skull, basically all the greatest hits from this amazing rivalry. And as a reminder, the reason why they're doing this is because this Sunday at Fully Loaded, if Austin beats The Undertaker, Vince McMahon will never again appear on television, but if The Undertaker wins, Stone Cold will never be allowed to challenge for the WWF title again. 
Essentially, they're billing this as the end of the Austin-McMahon rivalry, which, to their credit, it pretty much is. Once Fully Loaded is over, Stone Cold and Vince McMahon aren't really on opposing sides again until The Invasion, which is after this podcast timeline. So yes, folks, this Sunday is indeed the end of Austin versus McMahon in the Attitude Era. Hard to believe, but true. And from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... It's Pete Gass! I can't feel my legs. Will work for puppies. This match sucks. Dad, I have a tattoo. What would Jesus do? But the word Jesus is X'd out and replaced with Venus. My sister is one of the Godfather's hoes. And relatedly, Pacino is the real Godfather. Shane McMahon tosses salad. Rock, who pinched your nipples? Hardcore Holly did your mom. In case you needed a reminder that we were in 1999, someone has a sign which simply reads, I did it all for the nookie, based off the Limp Bizkit song which had been released one month prior. I like Amish girls. Guess where we're pierced. And Mackenzie is a child molester. That is certainly a new one. And right off the bat, I can't help but notice something interesting. Your commentary team tonight is Jim Ross and Kevin Kelly? Okay then, so why Kevin Kelly instead of Jerry the King Lawler? Because, according to JR, the King is having, quote, transportation problems, so apparently he couldn't get to the arena on time. Did Kevin Kelly intentionally deflate Jerry Lawler's tires so he could finally get some airtime on Raw? You be the judge. And we officially kick off the show with almost the entire corporate ministry heading to the ring. The only ones missing, as far as I could tell here, were Shane McMahon and China. And notably, Vince McMahon is still in a wheelchair due to the legitimate real-life injury he suffered in a motorcycle accident on the 4th of July. And speaking of Vince, he has a microphone, and he tells the fans that they all need to take pictures of Stone Cold Steve Austin if he decides to show up tonight, because it'll be the last time they ever see him with the WWF title. Vince is putting his career on the line this Sunday at Fully Loaded, but he also says that The Undertaker is putting his career on the line, too, because Vince will not be pleased if Taker fails him. And apparently, The Undertaker doesn't take too kindly to that because he tells Vince that no one threatens him, and in fact, Taker's feud with Austin is personal, but Vince's stipulation for the pay-per-view is business. When he beats Stone Cold this Sunday, he'll be doing it for himself, not for Vince McMahon. However, one fellow member of the corporate ministry is willing to stand up to The Undertaker, and he's also willing to give Vince credit for his vision, and, well, it's probably the exact guy you were thinking of. This is a guy you trust. This is a guy you trust. Vince, your illustrious career hangs in the balance. Your whole damn life hangs in the balance, and you trust him? The Undertaker holds all the cards, and not even you can trust him, Vince. I proved to you at King of the Ring that I was a team player. Vince, I know damn well who made me. It was you. Unlike Undertaker, I know my place. I know that I'm nothing without you. So, Vince, give me a chance to pay you back. Give me my shot, Vince. Let me pay you back. Substitute me for The Undertaker Sunday. Give me the shot that was supposed to be mine, and I'll kick Austin's ass for you. Hey, boy. 
you need to listen up. The road to fully loaded at Steve Austin goes through The Undertaker. Tonight, right here on Raw, we're going to have ourselves a match between The Undertaker and Triple H. Wow. And the winner, the winner of this match tonight goes on this Sunday and faces Stone Cold Steve Austin in the first blood end of an era matchup. And the loser, well, the loser can... Whip the hide right off of the rock with that fully loaded strap match. Either way, heads or tails, the corporation wins. That's the way you want it? Well, tonight, boy, your blood is going to be on my hands tonight. So Sunday, I'm going to bathe in Austin's. Man, what a... And before this night's over, I'm going to lock your dead ass in this blood mobile and take a donation from Vince McMahon's skull. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold sets up. So there you have it. At Triple H's insistence, Vince McMahon books a match for tonight, The Undertaker versus Triple H, with the winner going on to Fully Loaded to face Stone Cold for the WWF title in the first blood match, and the loser of the match also goes to Fully Loaded, but instead that person will face The Rock in a strap match. 
And by the way, if you've been watching these episodes of Monday Night Raw along with this podcast, you may be thinking to yourself, didn't The Undertaker and Triple H just face each other on Raw recently? And in fact, they did. Taker beat Hunter via disqualification on the go-home episode of Raw before King of the Ring on June 21st, and now they shall face each other on the go-home episode before fully loaded as well. Hashtag consistency. But anyway, as you heard in that clip, your WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin does indeed interrupt the proceedings, and he's driving a bloodmobile straight from the Central Kentucky Blood Center. And as a quick side note, yes, I looked up the Central Kentucky Blood Center, and it is still an active blood bank to this very day, so good for them. Also, when Austin drove up in the bloodmobile, I couldn't help but think, is he about to spray the corporate ministry with a fire hose full of blood like he did with the beer bath? Because I certainly do not remember that. Alas, though, he does not, which surely must have disappointed Gangrel. But no, Austin simply stands on top of the vehicle, chugs some beers, and cuts the promo you heard there. But of course, the crowd loved it. And Stone Cold makes two interesting claims. Number one, he's going to lock The Undertaker inside the Bloodmobile tonight, for some reason. And number two, before the night is over, he's going to extract some blood from Vince McMahon's skull. Will the WWF champion live up to those lofty promises? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where it is time for our first match of the evening, the Road Dog Jesse James versus China in a dog pound match, which is basically just a dog collar match, where each competitor will have a dog collar fastened around their neck. Clearly, CM Punk was going back and watching old Attitude Era footage when he challenged MJF to this same type of match at AEW Revolution a few weeks ago, and yeah, I know he said he was inspired by Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine, but... I think we all know he was actually watching along with this podcast, no doubt. And by the way, in case the concept of a dog pound match also seems familiar to those of you like CM Punk who have been watching along with the Raw Attitude podcast, Road Dog actually lost a dog pound match to Billy Gunn on the June 14th episode of Raw thanks to some interference from China. So yet again, we're getting a similar match from one month prior. You know, I'm starting to worry that Vince Russo may be getting burned out and running out of ideas. I certainly hope he doesn't quit in the next few months, but that, that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen. So anyway, Road Dog puts the collar on his own neck, but China, on the other hand, does not appear to be willing to do the same. And because of that, the D-O-double-G has some, eh, interesting words for the ninth wonder of the world. So let's pick things up from there. You know, they say that all dogs should be collared. And bitch, you see where mine's at. We said it was personal, and it really is. Now, now, I know how kinky you and Triple H are. You probably had something on similar to it last night. So don't be scared, girl. Lock it up. I didn't, I didn't think there was anything to that rumor. Guess I was wrong. Road Dog trying to trash talk China into accepting the challenge. Certainly, uh, Road Dog and X-Pac have a motivation to retain their rights. It's about building a tradition for Triple H or China, rather, in the Road Dog. It's about money, and China trying to get the early jump there, but the Road Dog was ready for China. And wait a minute, here comes Mr. Ass. The Road Dog's trying to get the dog collar on China, and there's the Road Dog's former partner, badass Billy Gunn. The 99 king of the ring is waiting away at the knob of the Road Dog. And Mr. Ass and China are going to look to seize the advantage heading to this Sunday. Those two will team against x Pac and the Road Dog. Wait a minute. The road dog getting hung. Road dog getting hung here. He's getting hung for the high. 
smiling this Sunday on pay-per-view. So as you heard there, Road Dog apparently has some insight into China and Triple H's love life, but more than that, his taunting led to Billy Gunn running out from backstage to jump his former tag team partner, and Billy and China then proceeded to throw Road Dog over the top rope, so he was quote-unquote hanging from his dog collar. And I say quote-unquote because Road Dog's feet were quite clearly on the arena floor, but still, it was a painful-looking visual. From there, fellow D-Generation X member X-Pac then ran out from backstage to chase China and Mr. Ass away. And as a reminder, this Sunday at Fully Loaded, these two teams will face each other with the winning group earning the rights to the DX name so they can enjoy all of that sweet, sweet royalty money. And speaking of former DX members, we go backstage where Triple H is in an office with Vince and Shane McMahon. Everything is going fine until they hear a knock at the door, at which point Vince and Hunter freak out because they think it's Stone Cold Steve Austin coming to live up to his promise to extract blood from Vince's skull. But instead, however... It's Mean Street Posse members, Rodney, Pete Gass, and Joey Abs. Shane walks off with them, and from there, we go to commercial. And when we come back, sure enough, Shane and the Posse are indeed heading to the ring. And at this point, I have to note something that was edited out from Peacock. Unfortunately, NBC did not want you to see the JVC Kaboom Box Kaboom of the Week. And what was that Kaboom? Well... Let's quickly flash back to last week where Shane and the posse were attacking Test and various referees and officials were trying to hold Shane back. At one point, however, Shane's sister Stephanie ran down to the ring and grabbed him from behind, but Shane, thinking it was another referee, swung his elbow backward and knocked out his own sister. And I know I said this a few times on the previous episode of this podcast, but seriously, go back and watch that segment because it's a pretty rare thing when you can hear an entire crowd go, oh, all at the same time. It was a truly shocking moment, and I had completely forgotten that it ever happened until I went back and watched that show. So yes, Shane grabs a mic and asks Stephanie to come to the ring so he can formally apologize to her for his actions from last week. But when he does that, we get a quick cut backstage where Test is asking Stephanie not to go out to the ring, but you can tell that she's serious about it because she calls him Andrew, and she says that she has to go out there. And Stephanie does indeed proceed to part the curtain and head to the ring, so let's take a listen to what happens from there. The kid's got to have a conscience. She's got a good mama. Uh, you see, there's only one of those here in this arena, and his name is Test. But you see, I'm not out here to talk about that scumbag. No, 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 no. What I'm out here to do tonight is to publicly apologize to my sister Stephanie. I'm out here tonight to do the right thing. So, Stephanie, I know that you can hear me. And I ask that you and you alone please come down to this ring so that I can do the right thing and publicly apologize to you. Well, the kid's finally showing some class. I saw Stephanie earlier today. She's here someplace. Hopefully she'll make it out here momentarily. Steph, where are you going? Andrew, he's my brother. I'll be okay. I promise. Trust please, me. I do not want you out there. Please, just stay here with me. Just trust me. I promise. Steph, please don't go. It'll be okay. I promise. I promise. Well, somewhat reluctantly, Stephanie McMahon is apparently on her way to the ring now. As Shane McMahon awaits, so there she is. A wonderful young lady. Truly undeserving of the actions that she has received from her brother. Well, what about her, her father? 
using her in that whole elaborate pawn uh, in the corporate ministry when she was abducted. She's been used and abused by her own family in a lot of emotional distress here in the last couple of months. That plus also having to witness her, well, boyfriend, I guess you could say, Tess, be manhandled on many occasions. Stephanie, I would like to apologize for what happened last Monday night. You know that you know that I love you more than any brother could ever love a sister. You know that I would never intentionally strike you. You know that I would never, ever intentionally strike my baby sister. I'm sorry, but it wasn't my fault. No, no, no. It was that derelict test fault. It is all his fault. He's been screwing up everything. He's been screwing it all up. You know, he, this whole situation is out of control. But luckily... Big Brother is here to save the day. And once again, just want to let you know that I've taken care of things. And I've been talking at length to Joey Abs. Steph, Joey has, he, he's willing to put your differences aside that have happened in the past. Joey Abs is willing to forgive you, Stephanie, and take you back. It'll, it'll be just like, just like it was, just like it was supposed to be. You and Joey Abs. Shane is pathetic. Like it was supposed to be? Shane, I went out with Joey one time, and that was because you asked me to. And that wasn't a date. It was a nightmare. I don't want any part of you or Joey. She's got good taste. Stephanie, don't you remember how good it used to be. Now I know that you blew your first opportunity with me, but I have a big heart and I am willing to take you back. She's an adult. Hey, hey, little sister. That's it. You keep walking. You had your chance. I gave you your chance. Now we're going to do things my way because I will stop at nothing for your happiness. Nothing for your happiness. Now we're going to do this thing Mean Street style. Give it up one time, posse. Well, I don't think I want to be in test shoes right now and shaming man refusing to accept any responsibility. So yes, Shane McMahon does indeed apologize to Stephanie, but he refuses to take any blame for accidentally elbowing her in the face, instead saying that it was all Tess's fault. And then Shane tries to get Stephanie to ditch Tess and return to the loving arms of Joey Abs. And in case you've forgotten, that was actually referenced in a GTV segment last week where we saw Joey asking Stephanie to give him another chance. And because of that, this week, Joey Abs actually gets some mic time. Who would have thought? And strangely, even though he's supposed to be from Greenwich, Connecticut, he clearly has a southern accent for some reason. Huh, strange. It's almost like he's actually from North Carolina or something. Anyway, as you heard in that clip, he tried to get Stephanie to come back to him, even though they only had one shitty date, and he even begins to stroke her hair, at which point, Stephanie slaps him in the face. Hey, our first ever instance of a Stephanie McMahon slap to the face. Her signature move! 
She then leaves the ring and heads up the ramp as Shane continues to yell at her. And I have to admit that I got a chuckle out of one of Shane's last lines there when he says, I will stop at nothing for your happiness. I just thought that was amusing. I will make you happy no matter how miserable it makes you. Certainly can't argue with that. But it appears that the battle lines have been drawn, Stephanie and Test on one side, with Shane and the posse on the other. Quite the family feud which you would think would be leading to a match this Sunday at Fully Loaded, but no, none of the people involved in this segment will be wrestling at the pay-per-view. Okay then. And from there, we cut backstage where we see The Rock arrive. He quickly gets approached by someone looking for an autograph, so Rock asks for his name, and then of course he tells the guy that it doesn't matter what his name is. Although I will note that Rock doesn't quite interrupt the guy in time, because he is able to tell Rock that his name is Mark. Yes, seriously. Rock then puts his hand up as though he wants to give the dude a high five, and then he quickly motions as though he's about to backhand poor Mark. I mean, this is pretty much the most heelish shit you can do, but it's The Rock, so the fans clearly won't hold it against him. And after a commercial break, we head back into the arena for our first actual match of the evening, since that dog collar match never really got started, and it is for the WWF Tag Team titles. And not only that, but it's a four-team elimination match. Champions, the Hardy Boys, versus the Acolytes, versus Draws and Prince Albert, versus Val Venus and the Godfather, who are accompanied by five hoes. By the way, as a quick side note, here in the present day, as I'm saying this, the Hardy Boys literally just reunited in AEW, so their legacy continues to live on 23 years later. I would say they may have one more run left in them, but at this point, who the hell knows? It may end up being 10 more runs by the time they retire, so good for them to keep getting those checks here in 2022. But anyway, before tonight's match begins, we get a quick clip from the SummerSlam press conference from last Wednesday, where Vince McMahon announced that current Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura will indeed be the special guest referee for the main event at SummerSlam. Now remember, it was announced last week that Jesse would be participating in some capacity at the show, but in this clip, Vince flat out says he will be the guest referee, so there'll be no more need to speculate. And I'm not sure if this was an intentional callback or not, but you may recall that Jesse Ventura was actually the special guest referee for the main event at the very first SummerSlam back in 1988 when Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage defeated the team of Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase. Did they put that much thought into it when booking him for SummerSlam 99? Probably not, but I thought it was worth mentioning. And amusingly, when Jesse walks up to the podium, Vince McMahon extends his hand for a handshake, and Jesse leaves him hanging. I mean, come on, you can't be shaking a heel's hand if you're a governor. Just wouldn't be right. And Jesse then says it's going to be his way or the highway, to which we get a trademark Vince McMahon nervous gulp. Fun stuff. Although I will say it is rather interesting that Jesse was willing to take this gig, because in the wake of Owen Hart's death a few months ago, he was making the media rounds and pretty much burying the WWF and Vince McMahon at every turn, while also espousing how much the wrestling industry needs a union. Most notably, he appeared on Larry King Live alongside Eric Bischoff the night after Owen's death, and Jesse was so critical of Vince that, of all people, Eric freaking Bischoff actually spoke up to defend Vince at one point. But now, Vince has come around and offered Jesse a nice, tidy paycheck, so clearly, all is forgotten. There was once a wise man in this industry who said, everybody has a price, and I would be hard-pressed to disagree with him. But anyway, after those clips of the press conference, we go back into the arena where our Four Corners elimination match for the WWF Tag Team titles is ready to begin, 
And by the way, for those scoring at home, we have our first match of the evening roughly 40 minutes into the show, if you count the commercials, just in case you had forgotten that we're in the Attitude Era. And our first elimination actually comes only about a minute into the match when Bradshaw whips Prince Albert off the ropes, but Albert accidentally runs into his own tag team partner, draws on the ring apron, and that quick slip-up allows Bradshaw to nail Albert with a clothesline from hell, one, two, three, and the team of draws and Prince Albert is out of there quicker than you can say cock-piercing. And only about a minute after that, we get our next elimination as Bradshaw bounced off the ropes to attempt another clothesline from hell, this time on Val Venus, but Val ducked out of the way, and while referee Tim White's back was turned, the Godfather hit Bradshaw in the head with his cane, which allowed Val to roll up Bradshaw. Tim White turned back around, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. The Acolytes have been eliminated, so the final two teams remaining in the match are your reigning champions, the Hardy Boys, and the team which may or may not be called Supply and Demand, Val Venus, and The Godfather. And we actually get some really nice teamwork here, as Val immediately nails Matt Hardy with a power slam, and he makes the tag to The Godfather. Matt then crawls over to one of the corners, so Godfather does his little chugga-chugga motion to signal for the Ho Train splash, and I've got to say, massive pop from the crowd. You can see all the fans coming to their feet because they're ready to see new tag team champions. So yes, Godfather does indeed nail the hoe train splash, and he tags Val Venus right back in. Godfather then hits his version of the Death Valley Driver, which he calls the Pimp Drop, and Val climbs to the top rope to attempt his money shot finisher. However, before Val can do that, he gets crotched on the top turnbuckle by Farouk, who was none too pleased about his team getting eliminated. Jeff Hardy then ran into the ring and hit Val with a top rope Hurricane Rana, Matt Hardy rolled over and covered Val, and yes, that was good enough to get the victory. Ladies and gentlemen, your winners and still WWF Tag Team Champions, the Hardy Boys. Fun match and the right team won, but now we're informed by the commentary team that the Hardys' reward for retaining their belts will be a match this Sunday at Fully Loaded against the Acolytes, and the match will be Acolytes Rules. That's certainly a new one, and I honestly have no idea what that means. I'm assuming it's probably just another way of saying no disqualification, but I suppose we'll all find out together. And when we come back from commercial, it is now time for GTV. And this week, oh boy, folks, this one is a doozy, because GTV captures footage from some undisclosed location featuring four stars of the upcoming movie Mystery Men, Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, Kel Mitchell, and Paul Rubens, a.k.a. the man known for portraying Pee Wee Herman. So GTV manages to eavesdrop on their conversation, and, well, Ben Stiller lets his feelings be known about a certain member of the roster. You didn't see that time the Stone Cold Steve Austin got his head bashed in by The Undertaker? Yeah, the man. Man. Oh, he yeah. tricked him into signing that contract in his own blood? That yeah. was killer! Ooh, oh, oh that was killer! Hey, what are you doing, a routine from the Mystery Man, the movie yeah. we're on? Oh, oh yeah. where can I play the bowler? Out my pants. Let me tell you oh, something. We all know Mystery Man opens July 30th, right? We yeah. all know you're Invisible Boy. I'm yeah. Mr. Furious. Yeah. It's the coolest superhero movie of the summer. We all know that's the only superhero it's, movie yeah, of the summer. I'll the say. But I'll tell you what I'd rather be doing. Which yeah. I'd rather be chilling back, checking out that chick Deborah's puppies in person. Oh, I love yeah. the way that she Woo! loves animals so much. I hear she's really involved with dog rescue. Yeah. I think that's great. I'll tell you something. There are a couple puppies I'd like to rescue of hers. Oh, you okay? I'm sorry. I just get so excited when I talk about that chick Deborah's puppies, man. Ooh, yeah. I just like to get my hands on those, rip it open, and just bury my face in it forever. I don't know what you're forever talking about. I don't yeah. understand what you're talking about. Hey, what's that up there? Uh-oh. What's that? 
So first of all, I have to say that I love the very subtle dialogue there where Paul Rubin says, what are you doing, a routine from Mystery Men, the movie we're all in? To which Janine Garofalo responds, oh, wherein I play the bowler? And then Ben Stiller just flat out says, we all know Mystery Men opens July 30th. Very understated. That's the intricacy of acting, folks. Quick fun fact for you, though. Despite what Ben Stiller said there, Mystery Men actually does not go on to open on July 30th. They actually end up pushing it back one week because they didn't want to open the same day as a certain movie that was getting a lot of buzz prior to its release in the summer of 1999, and that movie was The Blair Witch Project. So moving Mystery Men's release date might have been a smart strategy there, except for the fact that pushing it back one week meant that it instead opened the same day as another horror movie that made a shitload of money, The Sixth Sense. Whoops. But ultimately, though, it likely wouldn't have mattered who Mystery Men opened against, because it's a notoriously bad movie, and having seen it myself, I can confirm, it lives up to that reputation. And I think Ben Stiller accidentally tips us off about the quality of the movie in that GTV clip, where he says, it's the coolest superhero movie of the summer, and then seconds later he says that it's actually the only superhero movie of the summer, but I suppose a win by default is a win nonetheless. But anyway, as you heard there, Ben Stiller is clearly a huge fan of Deborah, going on and on about her puppies until he notices that a camera is recording them. And by the way, that pretty much makes Ben Stiller the smartest person to appear on WWF programming so far, because no one else in these GTV segments has been able to figure out what a hidden camera looks like. But I just have to ask the obvious question here. Where exactly was GTV filming there? Because the cast of Mystery Man is not on Raw tonight, so apparently GTV's reach has extended beyond the realm of the WWF. Clearly, no one is safe. And by the way, on that note of no one being safe, well, let's just say that Ben Stiller's little monologue about Deborah's puppies may end up having repercussions on Raw next week, so stay tuned for that. But anyway, Ben Stiller's puppy love provides a fitting segue because we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental title champion Jeff Jarrett, who is, of course, accompanied by Deborah, versus challenger Christian, who is accompanied by his obscure new theme song. And by the way, when Jarrett and Deborah enter, we can hear that Jerry the King Lawler has now replaced Kevin Kelly on commentary. So apparently, Lawler managed to clear up those quote-unquote transportation problems from earlier, and I still have no idea what that was about, and I couldn't find any reason for it when I did my research for this episode, but so be it. Maybe he was legitimately just late. Who knows? But as for the match itself, it only ends up going for about two minutes, but it features a customary spot for Jeff Jarrett matches around this time. He's getting his ass kicked, so Deborah distracts referee Mike Kyoto. However, Christian actually ends up ducking out to the floor to confront Deborah, so Jarrett takes that opportunity to grab his guitar. Unfortunately for Jeff, though, Christian manages to snatch it away from him, so Jeff rolls back into the ring and Christian follows him, with Christian actually prepared to smack Jarrett with the guitar, but Kyoto takes it from him before Christian can do so. But that little hiccup enables Jarrett to grab Christian and hit him with a reverse Russian leg sweep. Kyoto turns back around, he makes the count, and yes, your winner of the match and still WWF Intercontinental Champion is Jeff Jarrett. And after the match, Jarrett grabs his title and starts walking toward the ramp with Deborah. but then the lights go out. And yes, the Brood's music hits, even though the Brood isn't really much of a thing anymore since Gangrel and Edge have gone their separate ways with Christian trapped in the middle. But regardless, when the lights come back on, Jeff Jarrett has indeed 
been given a bloodbath, with the blood presumably having been taken from that blood mobile that's parked by the ramp. Not gonna lie, though, I was roughly 100% certain it was going to be Deborah who would be covered in blood, so that shows what I know. But now, with the lights back on, Edge then emerges from backstage and starts brawling with Jarrett until referees ultimately separate them, and we're then told that the two of them will be going head-to-head at Fully Loaded this Sunday. And it should be noted that the commentators play up the bloodbath situation as though Edge couldn't have possibly done it because he was still backstage at the time, and Christian couldn't have pulled it off either because he was still down in the ring. And yet, neither Jim Ross nor Jerry Lawler come out and say, well, clearly Gangrel did it since he's literally the only other person who it could possibly be. Instead, they play it up as though it's some big mystery. But hey, wait a second. If it's a mystery, then maybe they should get the mystery men on the case. Actually, no, never mind. Nobody wants that. And so we then cut backstage where we see The Rock walking. But then, in a rare, less-than-smooth moment for the People's Champion, he attempts to spit on the floor, but the spit gets stuck on his chin instead, so he has to quickly kind of, like, suck it back in. Gross. And that also caused me to think, why didn't they just edit that out? This was a pre-taped show. Just cut the camera before the man drools on himself. Incredibly bizarre. But so, after a commercial break, it's time for our next match, and it will be the aforementioned Rock versus Billy Gunn, who is accompanied by China. And before the match begins, Rock gives us what seems like a briefer-than-usual promo, where he simply says that Billy Gunn is suffering from, quote, Rock fever, and so he'll take Billy's temperature by pulling down his panties, turning a thermometer sideways, and sticking it straight up his candy ass. Simple, but effective. By the way, in case you need a quick reminder of this recent Rock-Billy Gun feud, three weeks ago, Billy attacked Rock with some sort of club. Two weeks ago, Billy attacked Rock and gave him a fame-asser on the floor after the Great One had just defeated Triple H in a steel cage match. And then last week, Rock just straight up pinned Billy cleanly during a six-man tag match. Because clearly, that makes sense if you're trying to build up the guy who just won the King of the Ring tournament last month. Eep. At this point, Mr. Ass needs to start getting some big wins, because if he doesn't, his singles push will be more DOA than Skull and 8-Ball. And on that note, we start off hot as The Rock runs down the ramp and attacks Billy during his entrance, thankfully cutting his terrible Ass Man theme song short. And what follows from there is actually a really nice 7.5-minute TV match, because let's face it, if you give The Rock and Billy Gunn a healthy amount of time, it's going to be good, folks. And Billy actually ends up controlling the majority of the match, with Rock sprinkling in a few hope spots, and eventually, we come to our finish. Rock hits Billy Gunn with that really nice float-over DDT, at which point, China attempts to distract referee Earl Hebner, and, well, let's pick it up from there. Suckered from behind 
So what you heard there was Rock hitting a DDT, followed by China distracting Earl Hebner. But from there, Rock whipped Billy off the ropes, and the momentum caused China to fall to the floor. Rock then nailed Mr. Ass with a rock bottom, and he set him up for the people's elbow. But while he did that, China grabbed a chair. And once Rock bounced off the ropes, China walloped him in the back with the chair, which Earl Hebner somehow failed to see. From there, Billy nailed Rock with a fame-asser, and yes, surprisingly, Mr. Ass just pinned the Rock. Ladies and gentlemen, your reigning king of the ring finally has a big-time singles victory over a quality opponent. As a reminder, this Sunday at Fully Loaded, Billy and China will team up to face Road Dogg and X-Pac for the rights to DX's royalties, while Rock will face either The Undertaker or Triple H in a strap match, depending on the results of tonight's main event. But I think it's safe to say that The Rock and Mr. Ass may end up crossing paths again. We shall see. And after another commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, Al Snow accompanied by Head versus the Big Boss Man, And strangely, even though Al is the reigning WWF Hardcore Champion, this match is somehow not a hardcore match. Okay then. And in case you're keeping score, by the way, Head has a big-ass railroad spike driven through her, uh, head, courtesy of Draws and Prince Albert, and that unwanted piercing has apparently caused Al Snow to go insane. Or, well, insane-er. Not only that, but the voices in Al Snow's head are becoming so unbearable that before the match even begins, he gets down on his knees and begs the boss man to hit him with his nightstick. In fact, he repeatedly yells, hit me, to the boss man, so in case you're wondering where Heath Ledger got the inspiration for the Joker in that one scene in The Dark Knight, now you know he was studying Al Snow matches from 1999. We have the proof. And, of course, the boss man obliges by clobbering Al Snow with his nightstick, and so we have us an immediate disqualification. I'm wondering if that was confusing for the crowd, because, like me, they probably assumed this was a hardcore match, and yet, after one nightstick shot, the match has been completely called off. Oh, well. And boss man then takes things a little bit farther, as he proceeds to handcuff Al to the top rope and continue to beat and choke him with the nightstick, But strangely, Al Snow appears to enjoy this, as we can see him smiling while he lays draped over the bottom rope. I see two possible scenarios here. Either Al feels that he deserves to be punished for allowing Head to be pierced, or he has a fetish for police brutality. It's definitely one or the other. And so, after another commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it will be a tag team match with two very unique tag teams. WWF European Champion Midian and Gangrel versus Edge and D'Lo Brown. I mean, honestly, that one kind of just sounds like Vince Russo went and pulled names out of a hat. Also, while the entrances for this match are going on, I just have to add this quick little soundbite from Jerry Lawler, who is piggybacking on all of that love for mystery men. Let me just say this. I'll save everybody a lot of money. I went to see this big talked about movie, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. The only good thing about being there was the trailer for Mystery Men. The only way you would enjoy Eyes Wide Shut is watch it with your eyes shut. It sucked! I'm going to check out Mystery Men myself. You're going to see the Paul Rivers. It's Mystery Men! I know, Mystery Men. You're going to see old Paul Rivers finally got some work, huh? Ha! He's great! He is my all-time hero! So according to Jerry Lawler, Eyes Wide Shut, terrible, Mystery Men, awesome. Well, hey, no one ever accused him of being a cinephile. He's been accused of being a different type of file, but that's, that's a whole other story. Also, he claims that Paul Rubens, who was caught jerking off in a porno theater, is his all-time hero. 
As a reminder, at the time of this episode of Raw, Lawler is running for mayor of Memphis, and apparently he's intent to provide his opponents with as much campaign ad material as possible. Yeesh. But anyway, as for our tag team match here, it goes for just a little under three minutes, and it ended up being a bit of a walk in the park for Edge and D'Lo. Our finish came when Midian charged at Edge, but he moved out of the way, causing Midian to run right into D'Lo for a sky-high powerbomb. From there, D'Lo went to the top rope and nailed his low-down frog splash on Midian, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winners of the match, Edge and D'Lo Brown. And we're then told that D'Lo will actually be facing Midian this Sunday at Fully Loaded, so if he's able to pin Midian that night, he will, once again, be the European champion, and, one can only hope, he'll go back to announcing his hometown as various European cities. Fingers crossed. And after another commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, Test versus the Lethal Weapon, Steve Blackman. And by the way, for those scoring at home, this is the debut of Steve Blackman's trademark theme music, or, well, maybe I should say that it's kinda the debut for his new theme, because they did previously use it in vignettes, hyping his return a few months ago, but this is actually the first time he's used it as his entrance music. And so we get a solid little four-minute match here, with the much smaller Blackman surprisingly controlling the majority of it. However, eventually Tess took control and set Blackman up for his pump-handle slam finisher, but before he could hit it... Shane McMahon and the Mean Street Posse ran into the ring, which caused referee Tim White to call for the disqualification. The Posse then proceeded to hold down Test's arms and legs so Shane could stand over Test, berate him, and slap him in the face. Quite the indignity. But before they could take things any further, Ken Shamrock ran out from backstage wielding a baseball bat, which justifiably caused Shane, the Posse, and Blackman to scamper away. And as Jerry Lawler cleverly points out, quote, we're in Lexington, and he's got a Louisville slugger. We're also told that Shamrock will be facing Blackman this Sunday at Fully Loaded in something called an Iron Circle match, which is apparently a match where both men will be surrounded by a circle of cars, and the winner is the first person who can escape. I have no recollection of that match whatsoever, but it sounds like it could go one of two ways. Surprisingly entertaining or complete disaster. We shall see. And I have to note, when Blackman exits the ring, at some point he picks up a pair of weapons called commas, and yes, that's spelled K-A-M-A, just like the Godfather's former character. And I had never seen these things before, but holy shit, they look scary. Just picture the sickle that the Grim Reaper holds, but much smaller and able to be held in your hands. Yikes. Thankfully, Blackman doesn't actually use these weapons against Shamrock here. He just kind of swings them wildly from afar. But I would be hard-pressed to think of a scarier sight than Steve Blackman coming at me with a pair of hand sickles. Sweet Jesus. And so, after another commercial break, we get our weekly countdown to the millennium. And thankfully, this week, they actually spelled the word millennium correctly. So that was nice. For those scoring at home, the clock is now down to 503 hours and 23 minutes. What could it possibly mean? I think you all probably know, but I won't spoil this 23-year-old moment for you, just in case. And so it is now time for our next match, and it is a tag team match. X-Pac and Kane versus The Big Show and The Big Shot, Hardcore Holly. And once again, we're getting some overlapping storylines here, so here's a quick recap. The Undertaker is obviously feuding with Stone Cold, but he is also seemingly reunited with his brother Kane, 
And Kane used to be in a tag team with X-Pac, but now X-Pac is teaming with the Road Dog to try and hold on to the last remnants of D-Generation X. Meanwhile, Kane is also feuding with the Big Show, who has had an on-again, off-again feud with The Undertaker. Got all that? Okay, then. But before the match even starts, X-Pac seemingly tells Kane that he has no desire to tag with him due to Kane's current involvement with The Undertaker, so Kane instead gets down from the apron, and he goes to brawl with the Big Show outside the ring. And from there, well... Things end up getting very interesting, so take a listen to what happens next. Uh-oh, right in front of us, Jerry! Oh, look out, look out! Get out of here! And, oh, Uh-oh. Big Show! His, his skull just rebounded right off the ring post, and here comes Hardcore Holly. He wants to get some of the different... Oh, my God, look! It's The Undertaker! What's he... Here comes The Undertaker! What's he doing? King Holly Holly... And the big show on the outside. And wait a minute. The Undertaker. Wait. Ah, Come on. What's the meaning of this? No. A choke slam. My God, what a choke slam. That'll teach him to snuff Kane. The Undertaker trying to break X Pac in half while Kane is out here in a street fight with the big show. And now the Undertaker's got the steel steps. Look out. Oh, baby. No. Carrying X-Pac back to the 
So as you heard there, The Undertaker quickly made his way to the ring, and while Kane was going one versus two against the Big Show and Hardcore Holly, Taker chokeslammed X-Pac in the middle of the ring. And because Kane was preoccupied brawling outside the ring, he didn't see Taker hit that chokeslam. And once Taker took out X-Pac, he grabbed the steel chairs at ringside and proceeded to help out his brother, ramming both Big Show and Holly with the stairs. Thankful for his brother's assistance, Kane then walked with Taker up the ramp, but before they could make it backstage, Kane turned around and noticed that X-Pac was down in the ring. So yes, Kane went to check on his former tag team partner, but The Undertaker told him to forget about X-Pac, and at that point, well, clearly someone in the production truck had it out for The Undertaker, because they showed the replay of him chokeslamming X-Pac on the Titantron, so now Kane knew exactly why Pac was down on the mat. And as soon as Kane saw the replay of the chokeslam, he proceeded to hit The Undertaker with a chokeslam of his own, getting a huge pop from the crowd in the process. Without exaggeration, this was truly a great moment. The fans really wanted to see Taker get his comeuppance there, and rightfully so. And Kane then picked up the fallen X-Pac and carried him up the ramp, but before they got backstage, Kane put him down, and X-Pac, seemingly with tears in his eyes, gave Kane a big ol' hug. Yes, it appears as though the former tag team champions have indeed reunited, and as you heard JR say on commentary, it seems as though Kane is, quote, almost human. Now, of course, if I was inclined to nitpick, which clearly I never do, I would mention they already did a similar angle on the April 26th episode of Raw, the same night as the Black Wedding, where Kane picked up a fallen X-Pac and then sympathetically carried him away. I mean, granted, though, it was actually Kane who had chokeslammed X-Pac on that occasion, but my point is that it was more than a bit similar to the angle they did here tonight. Still, though, this was great stuff. If you have some free time, queue up the old Peacock and check this one out because it was a really fun angle with the crowd going completely nuts for it. Miraculously, even though this was a very convoluted storyline, Vince Russo nailed the landing here tonight, so kudos to him on this particular occasion. And so, after one final commercial break, it is now time for our main event, the freshly chokeslammed Undertaker, accompanied by Paul Bearer, versus Triple H, who is accompanied by China, and interestingly, Hunter is pushing the wheelchair-bound Vince McMahon down to the ring. Triple H sucking up to Mr. McMahon, who would have guessed? There is actually a bit of strategy here, though, as China will be guarding Vince during the match to make sure that Stone Cold can't live up to his promise of bloodying him up. And as a reminder, this match features two members of the corporate ministry, with the winning participant going on to face Stone Cold for the WWF title at Fully Loaded in a first blood match, while the loser will face The Rock in a strap match on that same pay-per-view. A heel versus heel main event tonight here in Kentucky. And in case you were wondering if The Undertaker and Triple H would potentially refuse to get into a fight, what with both of them being members of the same faction, we get the answer early on as they both start beating the crap out of each other. And at one point, with Triple H distracting referee Earl Hebner, China even gets in a cheap shot forearm on Taker, so clearly, each man is in it to win it. And shortly after that, we get a quick cut backstage, where Stone Cold Steve Austin walks up to a cameraman and tells him to come with him because it's time for him to get a blood donation from Vince McMahon. And naturally, when we cut back into the arena, we get some trademark worried facial reactions from Mr. McMahon. And yes, once again, we even get the signature nervous gulp. So that was nice to see. Meanwhile, back in the ring, The Undertaker picks up Triple H for a tombstone. But before he can hit it, Stone Cold does indeed run into the ring. And he starts beating up Taker, which of course results in a disqualification victory for the dead man. 
So that means that, yes, our scheduled main event for Fully Loaded will remain the same, Austin versus Taker in a First Blood match. And because Triple H lost, that means he will instead face The Rock in a strap match, and that provides a perfect segue because, while Austin is beating up The Undertaker, The Rock runs out from backstage and starts taking it to Hunter. And at this point, both pairs of rivals start brawling with each other through the crowd, but eventually Rock and Hunter make their way backstage, and that proves to be bad news for Vince McMahon because China followed Triple H to the back, leaving Vince McMahon all by himself in his wheelchair at ringside. But he's safe for the moment as Stone Cold and The Undertaker are brawling through the crowd, and sure enough, they eventually make their way to the side of the ramp where the Bloodmobile is parked. And so, let's pick it up from there. Here he goes. Undertaker's going to use Austin like a human spear. And wait. Sunday, we've got a new WWE 
see Austin with that title belt around his waist again. Thank goodness. Pounding. The only way to lose is to bleed Sunday on pay-per-view. Vince McMahon has been busted open by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh, my gosh. Look at Vince. And now Austin has been busted open oh my by gosh. The Undertaker. Okay, so what you heard there was Undertaker picking up Stone Cold and attempting to throw him inside the Bloodmobile, but instead, Austin escaped and shoved Taker inside of it instead. Stone Cold then closed the door and locked the Undertaker inside, at which point, Austin then headed back to the ring, and once he returned to the ring, well, he noticed that Vince McMahon was in his wheelchair all by himself. And as you might expect, Stone Cold then lived up to his promise by first punching Vince in the face, then smacking him in the head with the smoking skull belt, which resulted in Mr. McMahon becoming a bloody mess. At that point, Austin grabbed the contract for the match and signed it... with a pen? I thought for sure he was going to sign it in Vince's blood, but no, just a standard pen. Stone Cold then put the capper on the beatdown by clotheslining the bloody Vince, which knocked him backward onto the ground and out of his wheelchair. At that point, Austin went back into the ring to celebrate with some Steve Weisers, but while he was doing that, Paul Bearer unlocked the Bloodmobile, which enabled The Undertaker to escape. With Stone Cold celebrating in the ring, Taker grabbed a can of beer, snuck up behind Austin, and smacked him in the head with the beer can. And as has been the custom for several weeks prior, Stone Cold was once again bleeding from the forehead. And for good measure, The Undertaker even started gouging at the wound to try and keep it fresh, which, honestly, is probably a good strategy if you need to make your opponent bleed to win the title. And before we conclude, The Undertaker actually drags Stone Cold out of the ring and puts him on the ground near Vince, so we go off the air with the visual of a bloody Steve Austin lying on the floor next to a bloody Vince McMahon while The Undertaker victoriously holds up the WWF title. As a reminder, if The Undertaker wins this Sunday, Stone Cold will be forbidden from ever challenging for the WWF Championship. But, as has been said several times, if Stone Cold wins, Vince McMahon will never again be seen on WWF television. Ever again. As Jim Ross proclaimed on commentary during that clip I played, it will truly be the end of an era one way or another, the Austin-McMahon rivalry will come to a conclusion this Sunday. Is that enough to get you to spend twenty nine ninety five on a pay-per-view? Because I think it's a pretty good hook for me, folks. However, we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him with terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stacey at. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking.
The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw defeated Nitro 5.97 to 3.45, which sadly is actually a lot closer than things have been lately. But this week, Raw bumped up to a 6.25, while Nitro fell down to a 3.33. Much like the name of Goldberg's current Megadeth entrance theme at this time, Raw did, indeed, crush him. But it wasn't for lack of trying, though, because we did get a few noteworthy moments on Nitro this week. For starters, I'd like to give a hearty whoop-whoop to any potential Juggalo listeners out there, because this was the night that the insane clown posse made their debut in WCW. And tonight, ICP, Vampiro, and Raven formed some sort of alliance and jointly beat up Rey Mysterio and Conan. And Rey and Conan are clearly a couple of troopers here because they were willing to sell for two rapping clowns who aren't full-time workers, as Rey took a top-rope moonsault from Violent J, while Conan took a top-rope leg drop from Shaggy 2 Dope. But unfortunately for Conan, when Shaggy hit the move, his foot ended up hitting Conan in the face on the way down and Conan suffered a concussion from it. I suppose maybe that's why you shouldn't sell for two rapping clowns. And by the way, in case you really want to feel like you're in the proper time frame for this show, just four days after this episode of Nitro, ICP will be performing at a little concert called Woodstock 99. Here's hoping they don't stick around for the Limp Biscuit performance. So yes, ICP made their debut tonight, but we also got a return to WCW from someone who had been gone from the company since 1993. And just for some context here when I play the clip, the West Texas Rednecks are beating up Chris Benoit, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko. And by the way, at this point in the beatdown, Bobby Duncan Jr. is choking Benoit with a noose. So holy shit, talk about an uncomfortable bit of foreshadowing there. But anyway, with Benoit, Malenko, and Saturn getting beaten down a certain someone returns to the company to help them out. Yes, that's right. For the first time in six years, Shane Douglas has returned to WCW. 
Now, obviously, when you think of Shane Douglas in WCW in the early 90s, you probably think of him as one half of the tag team, the Dynamic Dudes, alongside future WWE head of talent relations, John Laurinaitis. Yes, WCW tried to capitalize on the skateboarding craze by having Douglas and Johnny Ace pretend to be skateboarders, and, well, it was about as successful as you'd probably think it would be. But the Dynamic Dudes actually broke up in 1990, and after a brief stint in the WWF, where he actually lasted for 26 minutes in the 1991 Royal Rumble, Shane Douglas returned to WCW in 1992, where he actually had a little bit of success. Most notably, Douglas and Ricky Steamboat held the WCW Tag Team titles together for three and a half months until they were defeated by a new team called the Hollywood Blondes. Douglas stuck around for another two months after that, but then he left for a different company in May of 1993, and that was the last we'd see of him in WCW until tonight. And of course, that other company I'm referencing was none other than ECW, where Douglas achieved a huge amount of success, winning their World Heavyweight Championship on four separate occasions, including a 406-day title reign, which stands as the company's all-time record. And yes, there was also another stint in the WWF in between, where they gave him the legendarily terrible gimmick of Dean Douglas, an evil college dean. But now, for the first time in six years, Shane Douglas has returned to WCW, and judging from that promo he cut there, it sounds like he has some big plans. Although I should note that he said, quote, Tonight we take out the trash. And, uh, we don't actually see Shane Douglas for the rest of the show. So, maybe he took out the trash backstage instead? I suppose that would be very hardcore of him, so sure, let's go with that. Clearly, off to a good start. And on another note about tonight's episode of Nitro, there is one thing you will not be able to see if you're watching on Peacock, and that would be Buff Bagwell in blackface. Yes, Buff came out dressed as Ernest the Cat Miller, complete with makeup to make himself look, uh, darker. I'm not sure why wrestling repeatedly seemed to think that blackface was funny in the late 90s, but hey, apparently NBC disagrees, so it's been scrubbed from the broadcast. And the final thing I'll mention about tonight's Nitro is that we actually got a rematch from the main event of WrestleMania 8, WCW World Heavyweight Champion Hulk Hogan versus Sid Vicious. And I suppose that's fitting because last week they gave us Hogan versus Randy Savage in a rematch from WrestleMania 5, so it's just too bad the Ultimate Warriors WCW run fizzled out last year, or they could have given us a rematch of WrestleMania 6 too. But funny enough, tonight's Hogan-Sid match ended the same way their WrestleMania 8 match did seven years prior, via disqualification. Except in this case, it wasn't Papa Shango running in to ruin the finish, it was Kevin Nash, so I suppose that's kind of an upgrade. And in case you're wondering if a WrestleMania main event rematch would entice the WWF viewers to change the channel, the quarter hour which featured this match drew a 3.4 rating, while The Undertaker vs. Triple H drew a 7.7. Remember, Hulk Hogan actually turned babyface last week for the first time since his infamous NWO swerve back in 1996, but it seems as though the fans are already a bit over it. Alas. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. Well, as I outlined previously, since this upcoming Sunday is the end of the Austin-McMahon rivalry, that means that tonight was our final Austin-McMahon confrontation on an episode of Monday Night Raw, and honestly, it was a pretty good one with a decent payoff. Stone Cold beating Vince to a bloody pulp was certainly a fitting way to wrap up their Monday Night Raw adventures. Definitely not as memorable as the Zamboni or the hospital attack or the beer bath, but a fitting send-off nonetheless. Although I have to be honest, the highlight of the show for me was when Kane chokeslammed The Undertaker. 
Because over the past few weeks, they've been teasing whether Kane was loyal to his brother or to X-Pac, and truthfully, it really could have gone either way. And that's what made the end result that much sweeter. After weeks of whose side is he on, we finally got our answer, and the payoff was fantastic. Despite a few months of some pretty meh booking, Kane is still over as fuck, and it was a great moment. As for the rest of the show, however, you can probably skip it. Fully Loaded is not quite a one-match card since Rock, Triple H, and the feud between the two DXs have been built up pretty well, but they clearly haven't spent a lot of time building the undercard. In fact, that Shamrock-Blackman match was literally mentioned almost offhandedly by the commentary team, like, oh, hey, they have an Iron Circle match on Sunday. So yeah, I would say that you could definitely feel free to pass on this episode of Raw, but if you want to seek out clips from the show, be sure to watch Kane's Chokeslam and the end-of-show segment with Austin McMahon and The Undertaker. Some very good moments there on a show, which overall was not that special. And finally, before we finish up, here are a few notes from this week's edition of The Wrestling Observer. In an interesting development, Ken Shamrock is apparently planning to take some time off from the WWF to go back to UFC. Shamrock is 35 years old at this point, so essentially he views it as a now-or-never proposition before he gets too old to return to mixed martial arts. Spoiler alert! Shamrock does indeed end up leaving wrestling in the next few months, although he doesn't officially make his return to the Octagon for another eight months until May of 2000. Funny enough, though, at this point in time, it was seen as a big gamble for Shamrock because the WWF was the hottest thing in the world, while UFC was actually struggling to get a foothold. My, what a difference 20-something years makes, huh? Also, in other Shamrock family news, Ryan Shamrock is no longer with the WWF. She was asked to sign a three-year contract, and she wasn't interested in committing to wrestling long-term, and so one-third of PMS is gone. Tragic. In other WWF news, in what becomes a recurring problem, Mark Henry is currently in the doghouse because he weighs over 400 pounds and management is pressing him to lose weight. Over the years, I think the common rumor that's been out there is because Mark can't seem to lose weight, the WWF keeps booking him in embarrassing storylines to try and get him to quit the company. Because, as a reminder, he signed a 10-year contract in 1996, so at this point he still has 7 years left on the deal. Now, for the record, I don't believe those rumors that the WWF was trying to get him to quit, but it's hard to dispute that they do put him in some pretty embarrassing storylines going forward. Stay tuned for that, because some of those angles are, uh, well, they're pretty disgusting. Now, going back to that clip I played of Shane Douglas's WCW re-debut, you may have noticed that the commentators for Nitro on that night were Bobby the Brain Heenan and Scott Hudson. Interestingly, no Tony Schiavone. Apparently, Eric Bischoff informed Shivani that Hudson would be replacing him on a temporary basis, which Shivani was, understandably, not very pleased about. And this actually ends up being the first of three weeks where Hudson takes over for Shivani on Nitro before Tony ultimately returns to the broadcast booth on August 9th. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing this was a dry run to see if Hudson could ultimately end up being Shivani's replacement, but of course, we know that doesn't end up happening. And 23 years later, Tony Schiavone is still going strong in AEW, so don't worry, folks. He's fine. Staying in the WCW realm, Hulk Hogan recently did an interview for WCW.com where he took a few shots at some people. For example, he thought that the Giant was going to be the guy he'd pass the torch to, but Paul White didn't have the work ethic. And I suppose from Hogan's perspective, that kind of makes sense, right? Bury a guy who recently left the company. But then, he goes on to bury people who 
currently work with WCW, particularly Master P, with Hogan saying that the No Limit Soldiers angle has been a flop. But perhaps more interestingly, Hogan also talked shit about his pal Dennis Rodman, saying that Rodzilla was terrible in their tag match at Bash at the Beach 98, and the timing of Hogan saying this is very odd, because Rodman was literally just on Nitro this week, working an angle with Randy Savage. Apparently the Hulkster doesn't care about burning those bridges, brother. And finally, the night before this episode of Raw, ECW ran their sixth annual event called Heat Wave, with this 1999 version being the second one to air live on pay-per-view. And actually, for you ECW fans out there, Heat Wave 1999 is actually the most bought pay-per-view in ECW history, with an estimated 99,000 buys. And I know 99,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but remember, they're still syndicated at this point and probably airing at 1 o'clock in the morning in a lot of markets. When you think of it that way, almost 100,000 buys for an underground wrestling company is pretty damn good. But anyway, if you're not familiar with this particular show, it's best remembered not for a match, but rather for a promo, which is cut by Bubba Ray Dudley. And why do I bring this up? Well, as a reminder, ECW just signed that big television deal, and they're debuting on TNN a little more than a month from now. And, well, let's just say that this Bubba promo caused several TNN executives to, uh, wonder if they made the right choice. I'm going to play some of it for you here, and I'll warn you in advance, it gets shall we say, a wee bit profane. Just being in this miserable piece of shit city makes me You know what? 
it seems that you're a little confused. So since you won't come to us, we'll come to you. Uh-oh, here comes an insurance disaster. Big lawsuit. So not only did Bubba cut a <clears throat> not very politically correct promo there, but as you heard at the end, he actually left the ring and went toward the crowd, where he got face-to-face with a fan in the front row. And what you can't really tell during that clip is that Bubba grabbed another fan's beer and threw it in the guy's face, so clearly he's really riling these people up. And from there, he confronts a female fan nearby, and the woman proceeds to spit in his face, which causes Bubba to return the favor and spit back in her face as well, before calling her a, quote, $5 an hour fucking whore. Wow. And as for the match, the Dudleys went on to lose their ECW tag team titles to Spike Dudley and Balls Mahoney in a very bloody contest, and afterward, Devon powerbombed Spike through a flaming table. So yeah, needless to say, the people at TNN are already strongly questioning their decision to get in bed with ECW, and the show hasn't even aired on their network yet. Yup, that relationship just keeps on getting bumpier, folks. Buckle up for that. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or, if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes without writing a review, because that's helpful too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I'll leave you with one more tidbit about this week's episode of Nitro. During the show, actor Robert Wool actually joined the commentary team in character as Arliss Michaels from his HBO show Arliss, and if you're not familiar with the program, the Arliss character is a sports agent, which basically provides an excuse to have a bunch of sports figures guest star on the show. So why was Arliss doing guest commentary on Nitro? Well, for two reasons. Number one, he apparently acted as Dennis Rodman's agent in that aforementioned segment with Randy Savage, telling Rodman not to fight Savage tonight on Nitro, but instead to save it for a pay-per-view. So that's something. A fictional sports agent just booked a future match in WCW. Sure, why not? But the other reason why he showed up tonight was because the next episode of Arliss, which was to air that upcoming Sunday, featured Eric Bischoff, Randy Savage, Lex Luger, Rick Steiner, Tony Schiavone, and Mike Tenay, all guest starring on it. In case you have HBO Max and want to look it up, it's from the fourth season of the show, and the name of the episode is To Thine Own Self Be True. 
So yes, before we finish up here, I will leave you with some audio of various WCW personalities guest starring on the show Iris that week. In the first clip, you'll hear that Iris's team is meeting with Eric Bischoff because one of the hockey players they represent recently got kicked out of the NHL, and now he's trying to start a new career in wrestling. And just a couple things I have to note before playing these clips, though. Right off the bat, we get a concussion joke because, you know, a brain injury to a wrestler is always funny. And they pitched the idea that the guy's nickname should be The Enforcer, which Eric Bischoff is apparently totally fine with, despite the fact that, you know, Arn fucking Anderson was in his company for 15 years. But hey, it's a sitcom. I guess you can't nitpick too much. But then, at the end of the conversation, you can hear that things get completely unrealistic because Bischoff offers the guy a six-figure contract based solely on the fact that he was a big name in another sport. I mean, can you imagine that he would actually... Oh, okay, actually, on second thought, maybe maybe that's pretty accurate. And then in the final clip, you'll hear that the hockey player ends up training with Randy Savage and Lex Luger, and this features what I believe is an all-time audio soundbite from the Macho Man. I think you'll know the one I mean when you hear it. And finally, we get another conversation with Bischoff, where he openly discusses how the Enforcer's first match will go, because, you know, it's all fake. So enjoy that clip from Arliss, and I will catch you next time for the fully loaded 1999 Mega Episode. He's tough. He loves concussions, both giving and getting them. Guys, we're intrigued. I mean, Doug's got a name, but when our wrestlers go into the crowd, they don't really beat the fans senseless. If you're talking about that incident in Hartford, that asshole threw beer on me. Yeah, well, they're going to throw beer on you in Portland, Modesto, and Topeka 300 times a year. That's part of the job. What I don't understand is where's the angle? Where's the hook? He's already got one. Doug, the enforcer, Hager. Well, Enforcer's cute, and it works for hockey, but this is wrestling. We need something mean. Well, it's not supposed to be mean. It's supposed to be more, uh... Heroic. Heroic? Yeah. I want to be the good guy. Yeah, and OJ wants to do Hertz commercials again. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. No! I want to be the good guy. I want to hear the cheers. I want my kids, my wife, my mother to be proud of me. And you two are going to help me do it. You got it? Not bad. The kid's got spunk. If you're not interested in our client, there is another wrestling alliance that might be. Hold on. 600000 a year to start. He wrestles a minimum of 100 times his first year, and the enforcer wins when we say he wins. Rule number one. Always land feet first. Okay, okay. So, what do you think? Good pedigree. Strong. Not afraid of contact. This guy got thrown out of hockey for being too violent. I didn't bring in Randy Macho Man Savage to tell me that. I need you to show him the moves. Hey, Enforcer, let me show you the proper way to do a headlock. And when you do this, you really place it up. Now, here's how you do the body. Like hockey, only warmer. Wrestling's way more demanding. Hockey's for pussies. Only the wild rivalry. We'll have the enforcer go up against Rick Steiner. He's a new kid that promoters will love. Then in the match, Steiner's going to have the enforcer in a sleeper hole. When suddenly he escapes and he nails Steiner with a couple of forearm shivers. 
then the enforcer goes to the top turnbuckle. He's about ready to come down on Steiner when all of a sudden he stops. You're gonna love this part. And forgives him. Oh, forgives him. Interesting. Sympathetic. And just as the enforcer is willing to let Steiner go, Steiner suddenly attacks the enforcer from behind and knocks him out. It's perfect. See, that way the crowd stays on the enforcer's side, even though he loses the match. I like that. It shows I have a sensitive side.